1: v-day holiday weekend here in the uk so people are still buzzing with all things world war ii this is actually a podcast about something completely different although actually related to world war Two. world war ii would have been a different experience for the troops involved had it not been for coffee coffee sustained many people on long dangerous arduous shifts both on the home front also of course in foxholes on the front line or in the steel hulls of ships churning across the North Atlantic. This is an interview with Augustine Sedgwick, who teaches at the City University of New York. He's just written a book about how coffee has shaped the world, literally shaped our landscape in many places, becoming responsible for the pulling up of natural landscapes and their replacement by a giant monoculture of coffee. Augustine is convinced that coffee underpins the way that we work, the way that we relate to each other. It's ever-present. It's, a, it's been pretty fascinating stuff. So enjoy your morning coffee and relax listening to this podcast about its seismic impact on our culture, our way of life, and our economy. Because it's still holiday weekend, we are offering our crazy once-a-year deal on History Hit TV. If you become a History Hit subscriber, you'll get access to hundreds of history documentaries. You get every single episode of the podcast exclusively. They're not available, all of them, anywhere else. About 400 extra episodes you'll get. You will be able to sit in on live Zoom podcasts with some of the world's leading historians, like the one we did with Peter Frankopan last week. And we got weekly quizzes where you can win prizes and subscriber only articles. So it's the ultimate history package. Because it is the VE day weekend, the offer is still on. I hesitate to tell you about this offer because it's so good. You get 30 days for free, and then you get five months just one pound, euro, or dollar for each of those five month after which it's five ninety nine a month. It'll take you through the next six months for less than the price of a pint of beer if we're allowed to drink pints of beer. Please use the code VEDAY on sign up. V-E-D A Y on sign up to get this once a year offer. In the meantime everyone here's Augustine Sedgwick on Coffee. Augustine thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
0: My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me.
1: I hope you've had your coffee this morning. I it as we speak. You describe it in your book as the world's most popular drug. That's what we're talking about, I guess, eh?
0: As much as 90% of the world's population depends on coffee or its namesake derivative caffeine, just to meet the demands of everyday life under modern capitalism really suggests to me how extraordinary those demands are.
1: Where does coffee come from? Like, who's first started drinking the stuff?
0: The plant is native to Ethiopia. The drink was kind
1: of pioneered
0: by Sufi monks in, in 15th century Yemen, as best anyone can figure out, spread widely through the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century. That's where Europeans first encountered it at the end of the 16th century beginning of the 17th century. But it really doesn't become a mass beverage until 200-plus years after that, the second half of the 19th century.
1: You did that first coffee... Am I right that it's changed quite a lot since then? A lot of people listening to the coffee drinkers, obviously. Is the coffee they're drinking today different to the one that came out of Ethiopia and Yemen?
0: Is the plant itself different? It's been modified and uh, hybridized, as all commodity crops are. The process of making the drink itself certainly varies with place and time. I mean, it was the practice, and it still is the practice in many parts of the world, to brew the beverage directly in contact with the grounds and probably the grounds in some form as well, if not just simply let them settle to the bottom of the
1: cup and read the future and the pattern they made there. What's the science man? Does coffee actually do all the things that people claim it does?
0: <laughs> That's one of the most interesting questions I think around this subject is one of the things that the history of coffee points to is that the concept of the body, the concept of Quote-unquote the science changes so radically over time and the ways in which it changes Really highlights to me how little we still know about the body how the body works How it interacts with the world what exactly happens inside of us after we consume the things that we consume every day I mean, yes, of course, there's many, many, many scientific studies of coffee that have developed a very, very sophisticated concept of how the caffeine blocks the neurotransmitters that make us feel tired and how it boosts the neurotransmitters that make us feel good. But what the longer longer history suggests to me is that that understanding actually could change. No, it it certainly will change in the future and we'll believe something different while we continue to drink coffee.
1: But at the moment, lots of us believe that it actually just gives us a boost. It makes us more creative. It gets us through the day.
0: It's actually a relatively new understanding. I mean, if Europeans really started drinking coffee in the 17th century, there was very little. For centuries thereafter, there was very little consensus on how coffee worked in the body and how it changed the people who drank it. I mean, in 17th century London, employers were happy to have their clerks and their apprentices drinking coffee because it made them seem more alert. But on the other hand, some women in London claimed that it made their men lazy and impotent. And kind of variants of that debate persisted for many years, even centuries into the 20th century, when in the U.S. anyway, in the first decades of the 20th century, prominent advocates of capitalist work and capitalist nutrition or saying that coffee was not um, strengthening beverage, but was actually responsible for an American epidemic of innervation and frailty and national weakness. And then it was up to coffee interests, especially Brazilian coffee growers and American coffee roasters, to get together to counter those claims of people who thought that coffee actually wasn't so emboldening and enlivening after all. So this is a debate that has persisted over centuries and has really been kind of resolved in coffee's favour relatively recently.
1: <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you about the 19th century. As Brits, where this podcast is based, as you may be able to guess from my accent, we talk about the 18th century coffee craze, we talk about the coffee houses, the kind of creativity and the commercial networks that evolved out of them. But your book is very interesting because it talks about the stuff that we Brits aren't as good at, which is the late 19th century attitude to coffee in America. And I'm, astonished by how formal the study of coffee was and openly talked about, is this a good way to drug people to make them work harder? Absolutely,
0: yeah. It was an urgent question at the time, you know, because the advent of powerful steam engines and efficient new forms of mass production and mass distribution and mass transportation made the economy boom and blow up and expand to extraordinary levels, as everyone knows the one piece of the puzzle that seemed like there still could be room for improvement was, of course, the the unreliable, disappointing human body. And so to improve the work of workers at work and to improve the strength of laborers who were too often making mistakes or feeling tired or just not wanting to work anymore... People were trying to figure out if coffee could help to solve those problems and kind of unlock new frontiers of human productivity that would, you know, spur the global economy even higher. And to some extent, it probably did.
1: When you say experiments, I mean, they were literally experimenting, weren't they?
0: Right, absolutely, yeah. There were levels, you know, so the in the first part of the first decades of the 20th century, Brazilian coffee growers and American coffee roasters co-funded these experiments that MIT. And that lasted years. And the biggest part of that experiment was an attempt to figure out how to brew the perfect cup that would, you know, not only make it most attractive to coffee drinkers, but also have the most stimulating effect on workers. And the way that the MIT professor conducted this experiment was basically to make coffee in his laboratory every day and to serve it to all his friends on campus. So, you know, not exactly the most rigorous scientific method. But on the other hand, another part of that same experiment was based on rigorous scientific experiments that had incidentally been funded and developed by the Coca-Cola company several years earlier to counter claims that Coca-Cola was a dangerous beverage And those tests, which measured the impact of caffeine on workers, actually went a long way toward pioneering the double-blind process of scientific testing and research that is kind of the gold standard today.
1: Talks about this character that is central to your book. The central
0: character is a guy named James Hill, who was born in the slums of Manchester, England in about 1870. And if you were born in those circumstances, the best thing that a young man could do was to find a job selling the things that manchester made hill left home in 18 to work as a textile salesman in central america you know at the very time that central america was undergoing a transformative coffee boom hill made a good marriage to a woman whose family had land and coffee plantations and in part through her connections and his business connections through the textile industry he led the transformation of El Salvador's coffee industry on the model of Manchester's textile industry. He adapted innovations of the industrial revolution in Manchester to coffee production in El Salvador with extraordinary success with the consequence of founding a coffee family that is still Prominent in not only in El Salvador today, but also in the global culture of boutique coffee, coffee that's celebrated for its origins and its provenance and its tasting notes, and and the family that James Hill founded is still plays a, a large role in that in that culture and, and
1: industry today, and with profound economic and ecological impact for local people and the landscape,
0: absolutely. What I mean when I say that he turned El Salvador into a kind of coffee in Manchester is that he imposed the principles by which industrial capitalism had thrived in Manchester on the landscape of El Salvador. And what that meant above all is he built plantations that forced people to work in order to eat. Now, of course, that's how things operated in Manchester. That's very much how things operate in Manchester today. That's how things operate in most of the world today. If you want to eat, you have to work. Hill imposed that condition in El Salvador by engineering plantations to route the sun's energy threw the land into his coffee trees and away from people it meant you know eliminating other edible plants it meant buying up greater and greater tracts of land and turning them into a monoculture where no food whatsoever grew and therefore there were larger and larger pools of people who had to work for him or for other coffee planters in order to eat we can watch him do that and say well isn't that horrific or isn't that evil perhaps It is, but if we decide that, then a lot of other things in the world have to change too. Because what Hill did with great success was simply to impose the principles of the wider world economy onto the place where he found himself, the Santa Ana Volcano in western El Salvador. And when people decided that they didn't like those principles, that they didn't want to work for him in order to eat, that they wanted to reclaim land that had once been theirs as their own again, and they tried to rise up in revolution and rebellion against the coffee economy. The coffee planters of El Salvador partnered with the national government and the army to suppress a rebellion and what was truly a vicious counterinsurgency that killed thousands, if not tens of thousands of Salvadorans and in 1932 and set the template for that country's history for the rest of the 20th century and into the present.
1: We talk a lot about how coffee, tea, these monocultures, palm oil transformed our economy, but also climate and landscape. Talk to me about the impact that coffee had on the parts of the world that were selected to, to grow it.
0: Oh, the impact was immense. I mean, from its origin in one place, it spread to something like 100 million acres around the world and transformed nearly 100 societies which grow it as a cash crop. And in many places, the coffee became a central piece of the national economy, especially in countries like Brazil and like El Salvador, which I focus on, which you know, in the middle of the 20th century, coffee was more than 90% of El Salvador's exports. Everything in the country was coffee. Even if you didn't work coffee directly on a plantation or in a coffee mill or shipping coffee out, somehow the business in which you were engaged was linked to the health of that country's coffee economy. Of course, the implication of that was that the coffee economy had to continue and thrive no matter what. No matter what, meaning that even though prices were low globally, even though there was a great depression and a world war that cratered the markets for this product and, you know, all other sorts of pressures that came from, you know, trying to compete in a truly global industry which forced planters in El Salvador to rely on the support of the government and the military to race to the bottom to compete against producers who are doing the same thing in other countries. The same thing happens in other industries, of course. Palm oil, as you said, garments, sneakers, electronics. Whenever multiple societies are competing to produce a common product for the world economy, the consequences are quite often grim.
1: It strikes me that another black gold oil is equivalent. I mean, Would you suggest that the impact on these cultures is similar to when they find oil on or near other countries?
0: It's a fascinating comparison, in part because I think it points to the differences between and among export commodities. It's much more convincing to describe oil as a kind of black gold than it is to describe coffee as a kind of black gold. Oil-rich countries are quite often rich countries many oil rich countries have been able to monopolize or to exercise power in the global oil economy that allows them to grab many of the benefits of selling that commodity on the world market. I mean, the richest countries in the world today, the richest societies in the world today are oil rich countries. That is not at all the case with coffee. Coffee is an exceptionally valuable globally traded commodity. But the countries who control its supply, the countries who rely on exports of coffee tend to be poor countries. And they have not been able by any means to exert the power in the global marketplace that oil-rich countries have. Oil is a relatively scarce resource commodity. Coffee is traditionally not a scarce commodity. Although, you know, the truth is with climate change, and other kind of unpredictable and volatile global forces that could change.
1: Is it just it's a drug that we're addicted to, or is there some other reason for its extraordinary ubiquity?
0: That's an interesting question. Is there some other reason for its ubiquity? We depend on it to meet a set of extraordinary demands. I think, you know, coffee has helped our bodies adapt to the demands that modern capitalism makes on us. Specifically, that. We spend most of our lives working for someone else. It's not true for everyone, but it's true for many people. And coffee is one thing that has helped us accommodate ourselves to that reality, which in point of fact is is fairly unpleasant.
1: Did this book make you want to drink less coffee?
0: (laughs) It made me want to do less work for other people. Okay,
1: well, that's interesting.
0: Drinking coffee is a symptom of having to work for other people, I think.
1: That's a very interesting way to look at it. So it's performance enhancer when your heart isn't quite in it.
0: Well, not only when your heart is not in it, but when you're exhausted, when you feel like you can't do anything else, when I mean, you can't get up another morning and keep doing the same thing over and over again, what do we do? Drink coffee. It's not the only reason we get through, but it helps us get through. And it the, the history of coffee has more than anything else made me ask questions about the history of work. Why we... I'll assume that that is the natural condition
1: of human life. Do you think we are entering a new phase now? You talk about these phases in, in your book. Are we about to go through a phase of being suspicious of coffee again? Have you been reading the rooms of young people, healthy people, turning away from that necessity?
0: This has been the great fear of the coffee industry, basically. Ever since you know, Fonzie drank a Coca-Cola or, or you know, they've been worried that young people are going to stop drinking coffee. I highly doubt that's the case. It may be the case that young people start drinking coffee in brightly colored cans that are chilled in a refrigerator and basically turned into a sweet soda. That may be the case. That may happen, but I would highly doubt that we're going to be giving up coffee before we give up work.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. What's the book called?
0: The title of the book in the U.S. is Coffee Land, One Man's Dark Empire, and the Making of Our Favorite Drug. And the title of the book in the UK is Coffee Land, A History.
1: That is wonderful. Thank you so much, Steve, for coming on the show. Really appreciate that. Dan,
0: thank you very much. It's my pleasure.
1: I we The history of our country.